people were just stunned because we it's that sort of unwritten rule mm. that we all we all knew existed and we all thought existed journalists are off limits in terms of you know murder but then they crossed the line I mean I can't imagine how difficult it is to live 30 40 years with the death of your son or your husband or your wife and not know mm. how or why it happened you know or who so it's a terrible thing to live with I'm Nicola Talent and you're listening to Crime World a podcast about criminals drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. It's been 20 years since Sunday World journalist Martin O'Hagan was murdered on a Lurgan pavement as he walked home from a pub with his wife Mary. Known affectionately as Marty by his colleagues in the Belfast newsroom and an adored dad of three, he was just 51 when he became the only journalist to die as a result of the Troubles. His killing remains unsolved, but is believed to have been carried out by a team of LVF assassins acting on the dying wish of their twisted loyalist leader, Billy Wright. But what was it like to lose a colleague and a friend? And how hard was it to continue working in a newsroom with an empty desk? Today, I'm talking to journalist Richard Sullivan about the terrible night when a journalist became front page news the reality of working in a war zone and about the fading hopes of justice for Marty. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. I want to ask you, Richard, what was it like working here during the Troubles? As a journalist, there must have been no getting away from, like, the death and the violence and the bombings. Oh, yeah. There must have been no escape. God, it's, that's a good question. Nobody's ever really asked me that before. It's, um, I think you, you're, you become, you're so close to it mm. um, that it was actually, if this doesn't sound really weird, when, when the sort of conflict came to an end, it was stranger working without the conflict than it was when it was on. Um because you were always busy. Every day. You were totally immersed in it. Yeah. I mean, every day you were talking to these guys every day, so you were completely immersed in it. And when if an incident happened, you know, you were on it straight away. So it was that was your job. You know, we never really thought about it as working during the troubles, because that's just what the way it was. That was our norm, normal life. That was normality here, and everybody was doing it. We were, in, in terms of the Sunday World, you know, we all had our contacts and stuff. And uh, and and at that time, you didn't have to wait too long for something to happen. Mm. So. You know, it wasn't as if a shooting or a bomb was a surprise because you were expecting it. You know, because it was the next one was just coming all the time. So, but it, I don't think I can't speak for everybody. But I don't think we any of us thought here we're working in a war, which we were. Mm. But we didn't think that way. Certainly, I didn't in those days. That was just that was just your job. That's what, that's what was happening, and that's what you were covering. Marty came into journalism late in life. He'd an interesting background and joined the Sunday World team in Belfast, having left the official IRA and serving time in prison. But it was that vast life experience and his sense of humour which endeared him to his colleagues. He settled in immediately. Marty was, um, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say Marty was my best friend, but he was a good colleague and he was, he was good fun, very well informed. Um, I mean, he made a mistake as a young man. And he fully acknowledged that. He didn't try to hide his past or anything like that. Um, but do you know what? Marty was very fair-minded. He didn't bring his politics to, to the job. And, you know, he, I might always say, if we annoy either side, we know we're doing our job, it's balanced, you know. And Marty was very much like that. Um, 
a great character in the office. Um, and you know what? He, you know, people always say he's diligent, and, and people say that when people pass away. But in this case, it was absolutely true. He, he was a story machine. He would come in, and he'd do eight, nine, ten stories a week. You know, every week without fail. You know, and he, you know he had considerable life experiences in in a, in a lot of ways. Mm. Um, so yeah, he brought that all to the table. And um, but you know what? It was very popular. Not just not just within the office, but amongst politicians, contacts. You know, since, since when he died, the amount of people that contacted us to say, look, oh, I knew, I knew we Marty, he was a great wee man, and he did this and he did that. You know, he was well known mm. and had, had a great reputation for being fair. Well, I was at home. Um, I remember sitting in, in the living room watching TV. My wife and kids were in bed. Um, and I got a phone call from Jim McDowell, who was the editor at the time. Um, and he just told me he was, he was up here in Lurgan. Um, and I had heard, I had heard that there'd been a shooting, but mm. at no stage that I put put it together with. Billy King Rat Wright was an English-born member of the Ulster Volunteer Force. In the early 1990s, he became commander of its Mid-Ulster Brigade, but he was expelled because he was too extreme and formed his own breakaway terror cell instead, called the Loyalist Volunteer Force. Was there many kind of, was there much activity like that in this town in the yeah yeah, the yeah yeah I mean absolutely the LVF were quite um, prominent in the town there's a you know there's there's a, there a couple of big estates where which would have been sort of hotbeds of paramilitary activity mm-hmm. particularly the LVF on the loyalist side um, and in more recent times it's become a bit of a, a sort of a hotbed for dissident groups yeah but but I remember that night the phone going and um, and again I, I just didn't put two and two together and I never thought it would be Marty and then he said and then he just told me, he said he was, he was at the scene and mm-hmm. he was looking at Marty's, Marty's body was lying covered about 100 yards down the street from where he was standing. And it was just stunned, just absolutely mm. stunned. So um, I then rang off and rang a few of the staff and told them and that was just it, just it a big sort of roller coaster of emotions from that moment. But the most amazing thing about that, those few days, was the next day on the Saturday and the team came in and they were, we talk about being a team and sort of being, there's a camaraderie. That, that was incredible for them to come in. And we put out, we ripped up the paper and started again and put out a 28 page tribute to, to Martin and they were, they were incredible. That was an incredible addition. And we all held it together until then when the paper was put to bed, we went to the pub and everybody just collapsed in tears and you know, it was, that's when it really hit home. It was an extraordinary performance, I thought, for them to put that out. And I think one thing about that is, while he wasn't a family member to us, it gives us an empathy for, for, you know, for in what we do. So we can, we can partly understand what people are going through when they lose their loved ones mm. and the impact that it has on you. Because uh, it's impossible to fully understand until, until it happens to you. You might have as much sympathy in the world, but when, it's some, when it happens to somebody close to you or a work colleague, you, you, you then have an idea of what ordinary people are going through when they lose loved ones. I always say it, it really doesn't kick in until everybody goes away. You know, and the funeral's over. You know, people drift away and go back to their lives. I think that's when it really, that's when grief really hits you, I think. Yeah. You know, and then, because we had to go into work and put out a paper again the next week. I mean, that, that, was, that's, that was even harder than the Saturday because you come in and obviously his desk sitting there, his books, maybe a few personal items sitting on his desk. You know, that, that, was, that was tough. You have to do the silly wee things like the wee jokey articles and the pub spies and... Do you know what I mean? They all, they all became meaningless that week. So God, I remember just... all this night, God. And Khmer, he nearly made it home. Yeah, so close to home. 
so close to home. It's, it's incredible. One of these situations that a few seconds later and he would have been in the He'd door. Been in the door. And, and safe for that night. Yeah. But but again, we now know that that would have only been a matter of time. It would have only been postponing the inevitable. Because we now know it was inevitable, what they were going to do. I think Martin, I think Marty felt once the Good Friday Agreement had come and all that sort of stuff. And I think he felt a wee bit that, well, I know he did. He sort of felt that maybe the pressure was off a wee bit. But as we know, as we know, it wasn't. But um, you know, that, you know, life, life really didn't mean anything to them. You know, that's the thing. It doesn't doesn't cost them a second thought. Which I just can't get my head around how you can do that to somebody for any reason. In the years before Marty's murder, there was a peculiar camaraderie amongst the journalists working the Belfast beat, and particularly the staff of the Sunday World, who felt safety in numbers despite the threats from the psychopathic right and his mob. But everything changed after Marty's shooting. There was no suggestion of counselling in those days. Yeah. You know, we went to the pub and talked about it. Quite open, you know, like the, the pubs were packed, the, the, the journalist pubs. And you you go there and you you know you know what it's like you go and you you, you talk war stories you know you, you talk about your experiences and that was that was our counselling you know and I think there's also an element of they're not going to kill a journalist mm-hmm. you know, I think that was certainly that would have been in my head they're not going to be stupid enough to kill a journalist by the time Martin was killed I mean you think of the seventies and eighties and nineties even here what went on and what journalists the positions that journalists were putting themselves in and there was an unwritten rule. Even talking to the older hacks who worked in the 70s and 80s, they said that there was always a goal, sort of an unwritten rule that you didn't, even if, even if you didn't like the journalist, there was an unwritten rule, you don't, you don't, you don't do that. You know, and that's still in my, you know, part of my mindset, you know. Um, but unfortunately, I was wrong, you know, they, they did. Then the worry was that if they've done it once, they might do it, you know, somebody might do it again. They've sort of broken, the, they've broken through a ceiling there, you know. It was one of those, and I hate to use this phrase, sort of landmark killings. Everybody knows about it and remembers his name, well, because of what he was, you know, in terms of being a journalist. Martin O'Hagan was enjoying a night out in his local pub with his wife, Mary, when he was spotted enjoying a pint. As they headed for home, a hit team mobilised and he was shot dead just yards from his house. His death brought his hometown of Lurgan to a standstill and a war-weary public were horrified by the murder of a journalist. It was shocking. I, think, I don't think anybody ever countenanced it before. And then we'd never actually thought of it before. And then when it happened, mm. obviously it focused our minds on a lot of people's minds. And there was absolute outrage at it. Mm. Um, civic outrage. Um, and the funeral was, was huge. I mean, was it was it? just enormous. Um, I, mean, I think <laughs> nearly every journalist in the North was here. But there was a huge turnout from the public as well. Um, it was just, it was just enormous, and um, people were just stunned because it's that sort of unwritten rule mm. that we all, we all knew existed, and we all thought existed that you know you don't journalists are off limits in terms of you know murder and attack, but but then they crossed the line like they, like you know it happened mm. with Veronica in, in Dublin, mm-hmm. but um, they once they crossed that line, it's you broke a taboo, you know, and it's um, and it makes you wonder, you know, once that happens once. That's a small, intimate little pub, though, isn't it? It is, yeah. It's a, it's a real sort of typical little local. Little local yeah, pub. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the fact on top of it that there was somebody in there yeah. spotted him, you know, 
Well, you can see it's even just the layout of the town. Okay, the town, the pub's sort of on the city, in the town centre, mm. but it's it's, close, it's walking distance from Martin Martin's home. Yeah. So it's so an, so it was a local, even though it was in the town centre. If you know exactly. what I mean. Exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah. So you can just imagine it'd be the same faces. It's a real regulars pub, I would imagine. Yeah. There would be all regulars, so there was a stranger in there, or there was somebody in there, rather, who yeah, well, particularly spotted the, him and then... Yeah, particularly in those days, because people didn't stray out of their areas, for obvious reasons. You know, people didn't just go randomly into pubs. You knew you knew where to go and where it was safe to go and where you were comfortable going, you know? So, and you would have pretty much lived the way you guys did, to know who was around you. Well, Marty always talked about the pub, you know, and re- regularly talked about going there mm. for a drink. So he was a regular. I know we're always told... You know, very, very your routine. You know, don't do the same things yeah, all the time. Yeah, but you yeah. know, you can't. You know, life is life. You know, we get up. You know, and we go to the office. You know, mm. or we did in those days. <laughs> and yeah. you know, so there is there's a certain routine you just cannot avoid. Mm-hmm. And you've got to live. I mean, this is Martin's town. This is where he lived. Brought up his kids. Mm-hmm. So, and he drank in his local pub. You know, what could be more normal than that? And mm. you know, it's you think you have to draw a line. It's how life limiting you allow these things to be. And I suppose it's it's easy to say with hindsight, because Marty paid a big price for living a normal life or as normal a life as he could. Mm. Um, so people do. People have said to me over the years, well, you know, why did he why did he always go to the, to the same pub all the time? But I said, well, same reason you go to the same pub every week. You know, it's 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 comfort zone. And he probably felt safe there because mm-hmm. he probably knew everybody in there. Probably knew the barman. You know, that's you know you know yourself a regular if you're a regular in your local pub. No, this is you, do, you do feel safe. Mm. But this individual was in there that night, and I don't know if... I can't say if Marty knew this individual. Mm-hmm. Um, but he certainly knew who Marty was, and uh, he made a phone call. And that was it. And, and then, then he, he would have known which way he was walking home, which absolutely. was down this way. Yeah, and he went, as he walked along here, not far from here, mm. and there was a drive-by, and they shot him. And then that was that. It was just... It was stunning, mm. you know? And... Mm. It was opportunistic in the sense this was they got a chance then they got their chance. And, and they were ready to go, weren't and they? They were ready to go. Yeah. Obviously, because within within a phone call, within minutes, there was a car load of guys with guns in their hands. You know, so they were ready to jump. Well, we knew very quickly who had done it. We knew very quickly he had done it uh, from a variety of sources, as you can imagine. Um, Billy Wright was a former UVF commander in Mid-Ulster um, who fell foul of the UVF simply because, um, I mean, he was linked to, he was a sectarian murdering machine. I mean, his, his unit would have been linked to upwards of 20 sectarian murders in Mid-Ulster. So he was expelled from the UVF, which kind of split the UVF. I mean, there would still be a, a considerable following for Billy Wright even today. Because he was too extreme. Yeah, yeah, he was too extreme. I mean, he, he, all his murders were sectarian, just nakedly sectarian. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he formed the LVF and just carried on killing. Um, but he was, he wasn't, he was an intelligent man, you know, um, feigned this, like a lot of loyalists do, feigned this deep religious aspect of his life. He's always well-dressed. He was actually quite approachable. You could, you know, you could talk to him, which we did on, on many occasions. But um, I remember the, the first time I joined, this only were in 97, and uh, he immediately issued, just as I joined, he, he issued a threat against, a blanket threat against the staff. That was my first experience of being under threat. Um, it was quite an odd feeling as, as a relatively young reporter. You know, people can sort of be blasé, but, it, but it's, it's 
It's not nice. And it's not nice for your family. You know, that they're the ones that you worry about most, you know, because they don't really understand, really understand our world, you know, yeah. and the, the people that we move with and, and talk to and, and all that sort of stuff. So, but then Martin, Martin spent a lot of his time exposing the LVF, uh, which obviously meant exposing Billy, right? And Billy, by all accounts, um, one, as was famously quoted as saying, as soon as, uh, as soon as Martin's dead, the better. The sooner Martin's dead, the better. Um, so I, I've always said, in a way, Billy Wright killed, killed Martin. You know, they just finished the job for him. And the fact that even four years after his murder, his disciples were still willing to carry out his orders. Um, yeah, he, he, dem he demanded and got complete loyalty from the people who were around him. And they saw their opportunity and did him. And, you know, he, Martin was under threat directly from the LVF. Personally, not just the blanket threat against the Sunday world. He was under threat. And he would get calls. Like his phone would go at like two in the morning. And it might, it might even be Billy or, or one of the other ones, you know, threatening him. We're coming for you now sort of thing. But, he, you know, but he refused to... We had a plaque on the wall with his picture in it. And the slogan wasn't, he never stepped back. And he didn't. He never, he never, he never even considered being scared off. You know? There was a sense of relief in 1997 when the LVF extremist Billy Wright was killed in prison. With his death, many hoped the danger to their own lives abated. But that wasn't to be. Even then, I don't think there was a cheer. I don't, you know, there was, again, I remember the day and I was going on my way to the maze with, with the photographer and Martin rang me and he was already there. He was already at the maze. And that's typical of, that was typical of Marty. Um, I think Martin, looking back on it, I think Martin felt a bit of a weight had been lifted, lifted from him. Yeah. And I think certainly I would have thought that with, with Billy gone, he might he'd be forgiven for thinking that, well, that's it. You know, the head's been cut from the serpent sort of thing. Yes. And, you know, these guys aren't going to carry it out. Um, so, yeah, I think there probably was. I don't remember having a chat with him about it or anything like that. But looking back, I'm sure he must have had a sense of relief that, that Billy was gone. But I think it quietened down in terms of any verbal contact with Martin. Um, I don't recall any overt threat to him, but you know th these threats are always there. They don't go away. You know they never, they never call them off. Um, and it's not. I don't think you know. People have asked me, you know, did Martin let his guard slip and all that sort of stuff. I wouldn't put it like that. I mean, he, he was just carrying on his normal life. What he did with his wife was to go for a drink on a Friday night, and that's, he did that most Friday nights and. And that's all he was doing. So I don't think it was a case of letting his guard slip or being complacent. Um, you, you, you do, even though we're, we're working in the middle of it, we live in the middle of it as well. So you have to just, you have to carry on with normal life as much as you can. Although you're wary of things, where you go, where you sit in a bar, you know, you know we've got a habit of sitting there so we can see the door, you know, that sort of thing. You know, when other people, you don't need to realise it yourself, but when other people notice you're behaving, you try to explain to them, and that's when you realise we live quite an abnormal life, you know. In many ways. And you do, have, you know, it's funny things like certain pubs you, you wouldn't go, you think twice about going to. You know, things like that, you know, which are a bit odd for other people to understand, you know. What gain did they get from it? It was just about taking out Marty. There was no gain in the actual... It was very personal. Personal. It was personal. Absolutely personal. Did they think that he had no place given his background that he you know what I mean did you think that had anything to <laughs> it might have been it might have been part of the sort of justification process yeah you know it, they could turn around and say what he, what he was as a young man mm -hmm. because many people have lost their lives for reasons similar to that over the years 
you know, he was in the IRA or he was in the EDA, you know. So possibly. I think mm. if anybody challenged them, that may, that's, an, that's a reason for them. Mm. And it would be a justifiable reason for them. They would have no, no problem arguing that case. Because there was nothing this, for them to gain. There was no court case to be dropped. There was no money to be had. There was no rivalry to be gone. No. I mean, I presume he was writing about all sorts of people. It wasn't as if it was week in, week out. He wasn't going to get them jailed. No, no. So There was no tangible benefit to what they did. None. Other than revenge and a sort of a satisfaction that, you know, they, they carried out police bidding. And in a normal world, it should have carried with it so much hassle for them. Oh, totally. It should have changed their lives it irrevocably. It really should have done. But it didn't. They went back to their family lives. They didn't really make any great effort to cover up their crime. Mm. Um, it, was, it was done in the open, if I can put it like that. And then they continued to live in the open. Mm. Which is an extraordinary thing. Mm. At the centre of it was this, this guy Drew, the Piper King, as he was known. He played, he was the Piper at Billy Wright's funeral. So he was very close to Wright. Um, and we believe that he, he, was the, he pulled the trigger. They didn't just get lucky, you know, this, this was in, they'd been planning this, you know, and waiting for an opportunity and they got it. Five years before Martin O'Hagan was killed, journalist Veronica Geeran was murdered in Dublin. While the public outrage was similar on both sides of the border, the policing reaction to their deaths was very different. The reaction of the, both, the, both the police, the government, to, you know, changing laws and things like that. I mean, we didn't, there was none, none of that. We, John Reid was the Secretary of State at the time, and he stood in our office and said that no stone would be left unturned. Um, and, well, nothing has happened. Absolutely nothing has happened. Um, we're, we're still determined, but we're... We're also sadly realistic about this, you know. It's, it's, it's so long, so many years down the road. You know, I don't want to say it out loud, but you know, you're not, you're, you're not exactly optimistic. Still a group of Martin's colleagues and the National Union of Journalists organised a vigil in recent weeks to remember him and to call on authorities to bring his killers to justice. Amongst them, former Sunday World editor Jim McDowell, who was the first to the scene on the night of the shooting. Well, this is a vigil and it was spearheaded by the National Union of Journalists and Amnesty International, plus Martin's ex-colleagues. Some of Martin's family are here as well. And um, it's 20 years on, and still with all, there's no result in, in terms of his murderers being in court or being convicted. Patrick Corrigan of Amnesty International attended the vigil and has supported the NUJ's call for a fresh investigation into the killing. This wasn't just simply an attack on Martin O'Hagan, uh, felt by his family and friends and colleagues. I think it was an attack on press freedom, and that's an attack on freedom of expression for everybody in Northern Ireland, our right to have information about what's going on in this society. Journalists do a vital job on our behalf, and sadly, within this community, they come under threat, and at times, in Martin O'Hagan's case, that threat turns out to be deadly. And what's happening now with the loyalist groupings? Have they just merged into becoming drug gangs, criminal organisations? Is there any politics, if there ever was, left with them? There, there is. You've got, you've got sort of two 
camps, if I can put it like that, you've got, uh, they have just splintered. Command structures are largely splintered, particularly with the UDA, um, and they've broken down into, into drug gangs, basically, organised crime gangs, um, making an awful lot of money, you know, even prostitution, racketeering, all the usual stuff that you expect from an organised crime gang. But the thing, the only difference is they still carry the, the name of the UDA in some sort of, I think, belief that it gives them a semblance of protection and, and uh, almost respect. Um, and it's a similar case with the UVF, but I do know we've reported on it in recent weeks. You know, the leadership of these organisations have tried, they're under pressure from the government, are trying to move away because um, the promise was that they would transition away from crime in return for, you know, you know community funding, that sort of stuff. So there's money involved, of course. Um, mm. So, but there, there is a movement to, um, particularly amongst veterans, you know, older members who who would be genuinely anti-crime, anti-drugs, and we're in it for what they would see to be the right reasons, i.e., the conflict, um, not crime. So there's there's definitely a pressure. And I think there is movement. I think there is movement. I mean, it's it's outrageous that, it's, that we're here in 2021, and they're st- they're still here at all. But plans by UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson to bring in an amnesty for those who committed crimes during the Troubles may end any hopes of Marty's killers being brought to justice. And then this, the government's plan to bring this amnesty has, has really ruffled a lot of people, upset an awful lot of people. Tell I think us I, about that exactly. Well, so Boris is bringing in legislation which will effectively, it, it was designed to protect former soldiers who served here who may be facing criminal criminal charges. That's the, that was the intent of it, but he couldn't bring in the legislation to simply apply to just the British soldiers. So it now applies to paramilitaries. So all, all combatants, we'll call them, um, will now effectively have an amnesty for all any conflict-related crime, including murder. So these guys are now, well, they've been free for a long time, but now, they're, now, they're, now they will be truly free. Um, and that's a better pill for those guys to whose families to swallow as well. But if this legislation is brought in, it'll be the death knell to any, any progress yeah. at all. That's yeah. just the end of it. Yeah, that's it. And th- this government, you know, Boris's government, are pretty uncompromising. Once they make their minds up to do something, they don't really care what anybody else thinks. Now, I know the victims are campaigning. They're going to Westminster and, and all that stuff. And they've enlisted the support of all, the, uniquely, in this country, on this island, 11 political parties, north and south have united in a declaration against the amnesty, which is unique. Mm. All parties, you know, Sinn Féin, DUP, Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, you know, all of them have signed up to this. But I don't know if that's going to have it make any impact on Boris. He's got such a big majority in the, in the House that he I mean, has, has such a thing happened anywhere else, ever? Not that I'm aware of. In I, mean, I know the South Africans had their... society. Well, yeah. I don't... I, don't, I, it's, I mean, the UN, the EU... You know, the European Court of Human Rights have all condemned it, but you know, I don't think Boris particularly cares about that. Um, I think this, the only obvious, the obvious parallel is South Africa, mm. but they had a very structured, you know, truth and reconciliation program where perpetrators or alleged perpetrators freely gave evidence. And that's, that's just not going. There's no structure for that here, and I'm not sure that's even realistic here. I can't see, I can't see the UVF or the IRA volunteers sitting at a table across from the victims and telling them what they did. I just can't see that happen no, somehow. No. These organisations like the LVF and other paramilitary groups, they have such a grip on communities, but it's a grip of, they, they presented as support, but really it's a, just, it's fear. Mm. Uh, but when something like that happens, you know, people do come out, people do show their opposition. Um, and, you know, 
in the area where Martin lived. And Martin lived not far from the estate where a lot of these guys, you know, would have been would have had their power. Really? Yeah. So, so for those guys, for members of that estate, that even to come out and show their faces at the funeral, it's quite a brave thing to do. Yeah. You know, it's. Uh, but there was just disgust about it. There was, you know. Not enough disgust to give them up, though. No, sadly not. Sadly not. Yeah, sadly not. Were you convinced they were going to catch them? No. I, I'm going to be perfectly honest. I, personally, I had no real expectation um, right from the start. And I think that's probably because, partly fueled by the fact so many murders remain unsolved, and so many of them carried out by people who've allegedly on the police payroll or the intelligence services payroll. So, you know, I think there's a huge element here, and this goes ties in with the amnesty thing. I, I, I just think the state doesn't want the world to know what went on here. And and their role in it mm. and, and how they played it. So I think that's a big part of it. Yeah. So I I, I was I remember being very skeptical from the start. Oh you're always hopeful. And we had the usual promises, as I said, in the Secretary of State and, and uh, a succession of chief constables. Um, but here we are, 20 years later, and we're no further down the road. Mm. I desperately hope I'm proved wrong, but I have no expectation. Mm. It was an attack on, on society, not yeah. just on Martin and his family, but it was an attack on society and on freedom, any sense of freedom, and, and democracy even. Mm. And that's why that's why I think it's that's why it's I, I think it sets it apart. But you're right, it, you know what we do, you, you shake the tree. That's all we can do. That's it. And then it's up to others to take that information and run with it. Um, but it just doesn't seem to happen. I mean, the information's been there. There's nothing more to tell. No. You know, no. We've, we've told them. We've told them it all. Um, But there's just no, there's just no final chapter to the story. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.